America feels like it's on edge as the last days of the presidential race play out against the backdrop of a deadly pandemic. Differences get magnified and cool heads are hard to find. Nicholas Kristof knows the country's dividing lines well. He's written for the New York Times for over 35 years, but grew up in a small town in Oregon where many support Donald Trump. In his latest book, Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope, Kristoff shows how rising inequality had pushed people of all stripes to the brink even before the current crisis. I sat down with Kristoff to discuss how we got to this precarious moment, what might happen on election day, and what gives him reason for hope. Welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to our guest, Nicholas Kristof, New York Times columnist, author of many books, most recently Tightrope, Americans Reaching for Hope, which he co-wrote with his wife and former Times reporter Cheryl Wu Dunn. A couple also made a documentary based on the book. Nick, nice to see you. Good to be with you, Andy. So, uh, so much to talk about. And uh, I have to say, it's it's really uh, great to chat with you. I've been reading your columns for years and years, so uh, it's it's great to get a chance to sit down and talk. It's always kind of funny when people in the news business kind of know each other by you know bylines or appearance, and we kind of feel like we know each other, but uh, but don't actually interact uh, that much. Right. Let's start off and talk about the election, which I guess is topic A at this point. Um, President Trump is down in the polls, and I think 538 gave him a 12% chance of winning. Does he have a, a path to compete or to win at this point, Nick? Um, look, after what happened in 2016, I think it would only be prudent to say, yeah, he's got a path. And whether it's a 12% likelihood of victory or in the betting markets, uh, it's about a 40% chance. But, you know, I, I'm, I don't know exactly what that number is. But, um, yeah, there is a possibility that things will come together. I think it's unlikely. I think that it's more likely that Joe Biden will win in a landslide than that Trump will win at all. But could it happen? Absolutely. There's definitely uh, probably the most likely outcome would be a close closely decided race one way or the other. Um, what would be your take on a contested election and how it might play out in the courts? So, you know, boy, uh, I mean, probably like you, Andy, I mean, I remember reading about the 1876 uh, election um, between Hayes and Tilden, and it just seemed like a different world that that kind of thing could never happen in the modern era. And yet we do have some real likelihood that there will be a uh, election in which there is, you know, a large part of the country thinks that it was stolen. And um, I think that we are now so polarized that many people don't have trust in the courts. There are also scenarios in which um, some states could send electors to the Electoral College, who it is widely felt do not represent what happened in that state's election, and have done that for um, you know purely partisan reasons. And I think that is the 
aspect of it that would worry me the most. And we don't really have a clear playbook to determine, you know, how to address that if that were to happen. If uh, if if a state that is as very close result were to because that state is, you know, say, has Republican leadership that, it, that then certifies Republican electors. And that would be my nightmare. Um, and, um, you know, and I, I must say, I, w- I was also, you know, reporting uh, recently in Oregon, where I grew up, which is a, um, you know, a, a, a Trump pro Trump area. And there is people are very edgy. They uh, there is I mean, there's talk. I have friends who are talking about how there's going to be armed revolution. Um, and so for that reason, I hope that it is a decisive election. Yeah. Sort of following on that point, uh, Nick, what about this notion that the president has refused to commit to a peaceful transfer of power? Is that something Americans should be concerned about? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. It seems to me that and one of the things that I've learned, I think, from Trump's presidency is that, sure, we're a nation of laws, but maybe even more so we're a nation of of, of norms and institutions. And President Trump has systematically undercut those institutions, it seems to me, like the courts, like law, like the civil service, like the media, and also norms. And that is one of the basic norms that politicians traditionally have always honored, that, um, you know, I lose, I call up the victor and and congratulate him or her. And so we're seeing a retreat uh, from that norm as from so many others. Now, if it's a clear-cut election result, I don't think that much matters. I mean, I you know, I, I don't think that if it's a clear election result, there is any chance that President Trump is able to, you know, chain himself to uh, the resolute desk and 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 stay in the White House. But if it's a disputed election, boy, that really does matter. Right. Uh, law enforcement has scuttled uh, some attempts by far-right groups to that are tar- have been targeting Democrats and Governor Whitmer in, in Michigan, uh, most notedly. Um, is President Trump to blame for that rhetoric? And, and also, what about social media sites? Um, so, uh, you know, I don't think that President Trump can be exactly held to blame for people who want to take up arms to kidnap a governor, for example. But I think he ha- he can be held accountable for using what seems to me reckless rhetoric that pours gasoline on flames that are already out there, that uh, delegitimize elected leaders like Governor Whitmer, and um, that, you know, uh, in particularly troubled times, it's important for a president to be a soothing presence and try to unite us. And uh, we have a leader now who is working on dividing us rather than uniting us. And I, um, I, you know, I don't think there's exactly a causal relationship between his rhetoric and some crazy folks in, in Michigan. But is there a... Uh, roundabout way in which he escalates their ambitions. Um, I worry about that. And, and your social media, you know, I, years ago I covered uh, genocide in, in Myanmar that was very much amplified by Facebook uh, against the Rohingya. And um, now I see likewise that Facebook in particular 
um, kind of brings out some of the worst of us and it enables all of us to live in our own cocoon. And uh, instead of it question, leading us to question our prejudices, it leads us to reinforce our prejudices in ways that I think also uh, divide the country. And I think that um, the social media organizations do need to be held accountable as information sources for you know not doing harm to the country that we all share. Yeah, you know, these social media platforms are in the news every single day, Nick, trying to mitigate or resolve uh, or or figure this out. I mean, just the other day, for instance, Twitter uh, with this Hunter Biden story, um, they prevented users from sharing it and then backtracked. Was that the right call? Um, well, it certainly wasn't the right call to first go one way and then go 180 degrees the other way, uh, you know, but. I mean, I would have hated to be the CEO of Twitter that day. That's a real, I mean, that, that was really a, a classic, really hard call because it was a uh, report that I think everybody was deeply suspicious of, but hadn't been, you know, formally disproved. And how you deal with that is, I think, really troubling. And it's hard for, you know, for news organizations. We We worry about amplifying things that are untrue and then a month later, correcting them. And uh, it's likewise a, a problem for uh, for social media. I kind of thought that Facebook probably handled that the best by um, acknowledging these doubts and not quite not not killing the story, but kind of breaking its momentum. I think that was probably the the sensible way to handle it. Yeah, I mean, Twitter probably ended up drawing more attention to the story. Exactly. Gotten otherwise, of course. But what about if Joe Biden wins, Nick? Should um, he and his administration investigate possible crimes by by President Trump and his associates, or is it better just to move on? Have you thought about that? So his administration, uh, the Biden administration, definitely should not investigate uh, crimes by Trump as such. But uh, you know, I think the Southern District of New York, for example, has investigations underway, and I think those, uh, you know, should continue without interference by the political process in the White House. Um, and so, I think that you know, criminal investigations that are divorced from politics uh, are appropriate. I also think that when this pandemic is over that it would be useful to have a either bipartisan or nonpartisan national commission look at what went wrong, at lessons learned, and at what we do to prepare for the next pandemic. Because the one thing we know is that there will be uh, other uh, viruses emerging. It's probably more likely to be a, an avian influenza than it is a coronavirus, but um, there will be others coming along. And we, we bungled this one, so let's learn lessons. Yeah, I want to get back to the pandemic uh, subject that you you raised, but another question about politics. I want to talk about, about a tightrope as well. But uh, let me ask you about the GOP because a lot of people have suggested that the party is, um, if not in disarray, shrinking without President Trump, and that once President Trump loses, that it will be a shadow uh, of its former self. Um, you know, in some ways, what invigorates a party is, uh, is losing. Uh, and so 
the Republican Party is torn these days because it has elements of the traditional kind of country club Republicans that the Bush family uh, represented, and it has the kind of, uh, you know, working class uh, one-time Democrats that uh, Trump doesn't exactly represent, but that he's appealed to. Um, and uh, there, and it has evangelical uh, Christians. And, you know, those groups have very little in common, um, and they've been very divided under President Trump. I think that if Joe Biden were elected, and especially if he had a clean sweep with a Republican, with a Democratic Senate and House, um, I think I think Republicans would again find common cause in outrage at um, at at things that uh, a Biden administration did, and I think that uh, in some ways losing badly in this election um, and disavowing uh, Donald Trump would begin to heal some of those divisions in the GOP. Interesting. I want to ask about tightrope. Um, it tells the stories of struggling people in your hometown, Yamhill. Right? Is that how I pronounce it? Yeah, Yamhill. Yamhill, Oregon, with, with sort of a larger story about inequality in America. Um, why did you feel compelled to tell that story now, Nick? So um, my wife, Cheryl, and I were traveling around the world, uh, Andy, covering humanitarian crises abroad. And we would go back periodically to our family farm where my mom still lives. And we saw a humanitarian crisis unfolding right there in working class America. And, you know, a, a quarter of the kids on my old school bus are now dead from drugs, alcohol and suicide. And that is, you know, the same thing happened in West Virginia. It happened in northern Maine. It happened in so many parts of this country to to the working class, to the white and black working classes. And it seemed to me that this was an issue that, frankly, we in the media did not adequately address. I spent a lot of time reporting in Iraq and Afghanistan, and those were important stories. But meanwhile, every uh, three weeks, more Americans were dying in the U.S. of drugs, alcohol, and suicide than died in 19 years of war in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. And just the amount of pain across America, uh, the number of children who are truly struggling and not getting an opportunity, uh, I think, you know, I, I think is something that we as a country have to face this uh, failure. I also think, frankly, it's a reason that President Trump was elected in 2016. Um, you know, the, there were many factors that led to his election, but I think one of them was this sense in working class America that they had been betrayed, that a period of upward mobility was over, and uh, that they had, you know, that it was just kind of a a creed occur, they desperately wanted help. And in that context, it's easy to believe somebody who says he's gonna bring back manufacturing jobs. Let's talk about the causes. Technology, globalism, tax cuts, deregulation, all of that, and, and what do we do about it? Well, so I think we, in the US, I think we're often a little bit too glib in talking about the, these it simply as a function of globalization and technology. And, you know, there is no doubt that these are factors. And my friends lost jobs for those reasons. But Canada also faced globalization, also faced technological change. So did Germany. And in Germany and Canada, you don't see the equivalent of 70,000 people dying of drug overdoses each year. You don't see suicide rates at a 75-year high. 
there was something about the way we in the U.S. showed a kind of callous disregard for those who lost their jobs, didn't provide job retraining, didn't provide health care. Um, and so I think that we also have to acknowledge that these are the fruits of 50 years of bad choices that we as a country uh, made. We often talk about bad choices that individuals make and you know, and turning to drugs or alcohol, whatever. And, you know, those are real. There's no doubt that those bad choices complicate things. But we as a country also made a lot of really bad choices. I mean, some of those choices, Nick, are companies in the United States being so proud of the fact that we are the most profitable. We have the lowest headcount. Uh, our costs per head are lower than any other countries in the United States. You look at a country like France, my goodness, they're higher, they're higher, they're higher. But that's the trade-off, isn't it? That kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And um, we evolved in a country from you know I, there's some there's a point of view in the U.S. that the problem is capitalism, and I really don't think that's true because from 1945 through about 1980, we had obviously a you know a capitalist system that provided very very strong economic growth, but in an inclusive way. So I don't think the problem is capitalism as such, but we moved from a kind of a, a stakeholder capitalism to a shareholder capitalism in which it was all about um, just cutting costs, costs and you know throwing people overboard in ways that were often good for short-term earnings, but not good for society as a whole or for taxpayers. And I think that, you know, that it's it's complicated to try to figure out how to navigate that balance. I think you can make the case that in the 50s and 60s, the U.S. US corporations maybe were not aggressive enough in, in cutting costs. But I think we really went overboard the other direction after the 1970s. Yeah, I mean, there's a pendulum effect, right? I mean, and of course, the labor unions were strong at that point, and then they became hollowed out um, and, and were attacked. And some of those attacks were legitimate. Um, yeah. but, but now it's gone too far. Although, you know, we don't have any manufacturing, so now you have to organize all the people at Google. And I don't know what the rest of the people in America who can't work at Google are going to do besides cleaning Motel 6s or something. It's, I mean, it really is a complicated thing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. But, for example, one thing that we looked at in Tightrope is what happened to auto workers uh, at Ford Motor Company who were laid off in both Canada and in the U.S. And so in Detroit and just across the border in Windsor, Ontario, uh, Ford laid off auto workers. On the U.S. side, our policy response was to provide extended unemployment benefits. Those provide a monetary stream. On the Canadian side, of course, those laid off auto workers did not lose their health care. So that was a benefit to them. But also what Ontario really did was emphasize uh, job retraining. And it was telling these guys, okay, you've been a welder for 30 years, but doesn't look like we need a lot of welding uh, jobs in Ontario. We will need healthcare workers and we can put you in a, in a ultrasound operator class on Monday or a nursing class on Monday. And it turned out basically that that worked and people were able to shift into growing areas of the economy so that today they and their kids are less likely to be dependent on drugs and their and their families fractured you offer some other policy solutions in the book universal health care um minimum wage hikes 
Um, but the two parties are pretty deeply divided on those issues, Nick. So um, how is there any chance of us getting together here politically to seek those kinds of solutions? So I do think that there is a ray of, of hope here. And so a couple of things. I'd note that the um, that working class Americans, for example, who traditionally voted Republican, um, on some of the, I mean, they vote Republican because of sort of cultural issues, because of uh, gun rights, uh, because of same-sex marriage, because of abortion. But if you ask, should the minimum wage be raised? Absolutely, they're in favor. Uh, should there be higher taxes on the wealthy? Absolutely. Should there be bandwidth for all? Again, absolutely. These are very popular. <clears throat> and I think that there is some chance that this election will be a little like the 1932 election that elected uh, Franklin Roosevelt with a with a, a huge majority and also flipped the Senate. And it was precisely, I think, because of, the, because of the failure of Herbert Hoover over four years in the Great Depression that enabled FDR to get a mandate. And FDR was no revolutionary, but but he was pragmatically looking for things that worked. And I think that it is plausible, though not inevitable, that uh, Joe Biden will likewise be elected with a mandate precisely because we've all seen now, you know, the cost when we don't have uh, universal health care, when we don't have universal paid sick leave, uh, when we don't have uh, more equal education for America's kids. Maybe, maybe there is a path forward to address some of these long-term inequities. Um, I'm, you know, Andy, on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, I'm optimistic about that. Tuesdays and Thursdays, I think no chance. <laughs> well, it says three to two, Nick. Yep, yep. <laughs> Counting weekends. Um, so what happens if Donald Trump is reelected, though? And, and what happens to our standing in the world? And boy, I mean, you know, or is it just so much, anticipating an answer perhaps, so much liberal hand-wringing that maybe actually what President Trump is looking to do, particularly with China, will make sense? Um. I um, I would very much worry about uh, another four years. I think that in general, uh, President Trump. I mean, presidents are tested when there's a crisis, and for the first three years of this administration, we really didn't have that kind of a, a, a crisis. Um, and then, of course, we got COVID, which was a which was a huge crisis, but. <clears throat> I would worry about what happens when there's an incident in the South China Sea between a Chinese ship and a U.S. Uh, naval vessel and the U.S. ship goes down or China makes moves on Taiwan or uh, North Korea. North Korea, as you know, has been uh, building new missiles and, and, and nuclear warheads all this time. If um, we resume a path toward uh, war there, uh, or you know, Russia messes with Estonia, we've been kind of lucky that those in incidents have not happened. Uh, time is going to run out, and <clears throat> you know, for the same reason that Jim Mattis and H.R. McMaster and uh, John Kelly and other Trump aides deeply worried about precisely that kind of crisis, that's kind of my nightmare: how quickly things could go awry in that kind of global uh, global situation. And China, which has, I, I guess we can say, done a better job of controlling 
the coronavirus, Trump's finger pointing notwithstanding. Uh, the numbers don't lie, I guess. And the economy seems to be restarting. And there's just a story about that today in your paper. Does that change the dynamic between the two countries right now? One of the dangerous elements in the relationship is that China is full of self-confidence and sees the U.S. as a declining power and sees the U.S. Uh, efforts to stand up to China as the enfeebled efforts of this sinking former power to, uh, to try to hold back the inevitable course of events. And I think that is you know, a deeply dangerous trajectory. I think that Xi Jinping, uh, the Chinese leader, is prone to miscalculation. And um, I worry a lot that in the case of Taiwan, for example, um, that they might take steps that they don't necessarily intend to lead to war, but that very quickly escalate. Um, and, you know, in some ways, Xi Jinping and Donald Trump are kind of similar. They're both sort of cocky, a little full of themselves, a little prone to bombast, and um, it's, it can be a dangerous combination. What will the world look like at some point when Donald Trump is not president, maybe soon, maybe later? Um, and will we ever go back, Nick, maybe in particular with regard to the United States? So I... I can't really talk about the eight year, uh, you know, what happens if President Trump is president for eight years. But I'm more optimistic than a lot of my friends are about what would happen if he is president for four years. And I think a lot of people think that he has done irreparable damage to the country, to our institutions. I'm not sure that that's right. And I, you know, I was young then, but I do remember the way we were able to heal after Vietnam. Uh, after the Nixon presidency, and in some ways after Nixon, because Nixon had mounted this assault on American institutions, that made everybody become, understand better their importance in the country. And, you know, I became a journalist in part because as a kid, I saw Woodward and Bernstein and the role of the press in checking an out-of-control presidency. I think that it may be that President Trump's assaults on American institutions and norms will leave the country with a better appreciation of how important those norms and institutions are. I mean, it's a somewhat optimistic take. I, I'm not sure I would bet on it, but it does seem to me a very plausible outcome. You know, when you talk about um, how you got into journalism, I'm, it's similar to me. We're the same age, one month apart, and I grew up in Washington, D.C., having the same instincts and, and pull in terms of my career. So I, I hear you. Um, there are things that are different though today. And of course you would acknowledge that. One thing, for instance, we talked about wealth and income inequality, that's part of tightrope, but that the rich and the super rich and the Silicon Valley and the billionaires, particularly during COVID, um, inadvertently getting even wealthier than they were before. How can we address this or should we? I think we should address uh, inequality and, you know, but maybe inequality is the wrong framework. You know, inequality is a word that tends to get liberals um, focused, but tends to turn off conservatives. Uh, opportunity 
is a word that everybody unites around. I think I saw a poll that 97% uh, of Americans agree there should be more opportunity for America's kids. And 97% you know, of Americans don't agree that the world is round. <laughs> that's, a, that's a huge consensus. And so um, I, you know, I think the fact that you can predict a child's uh, outcome based on the zip code in which they are born should be a scandal. The fact that in at least three American counties, life expectancy is shorter than in Cambodia uh, or Bangladesh, that's, you know, that's not because those kids are showing a lack of personal responsibilities because we as a country are showing a lack of personal responsibility. And one of the things, one of the reasons we wrote Tightrope and did this documentary is really an attempt to highlight the need for fundamental changes to provide greater opportunity for kids in ways that not only help those kids, but also restore a better future for the country as a whole. Yeah, I, I love the zip code work that you do. And I, I saw that you did it in a tax cheat story comparing this woman in prison to President Trump. And then that audit by zip code thing, where the most audited zip codes are these impoverished uh, county, the one in the number one in Mississippi with the high uh, level of African-American residents, right? Yeah, that's right. The um, That's Humphreys County, Mississippi, and it has the highest rate of tax audits in the country. And it's a majority African-American uh, county with, I think, a, a per capita income of $28,000 or something, you know, and the idea that that is where the IRS is focusing its resources. And uh, meanwhile, if I remember right, only 0.8% of 2018 uh, uh, tax filings of more than $10 million have been audited. You know, there, <laughs> there is something wrong with this picture. And it reflects an inequality not only of wealth and income, but an inequality of opportunity and an inequality of political power and of a kind of, of human rights. Um, so I think we need to look at these sort of basic issues of, of fairness, of who we are. And these are complicated, they're hard, they're no easy policies, but other countries, Canada manages to largely figure these out. So does Germany, um, so does Japan. You know, I think we, we can do better than we are. Another hot button topic right now, Nick, is stimulus and what uh, Washington should do to get our economy back on track. Do these checks to Americans work? What's the best way for the government to help us out during the pandemic, you think? Um, the, the fact that we can't manage a new stimulus package when, um, you know, 10 percent of American households with children now say they don't have enough food uh, in the last week is just unconscionable. And I, I worry that if it doesn't happen before the election, that it won't happen before January either. Um, we also have troubling indications that uh, suicide is up, uh, that uh, use of, 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 of drugs is up. Uh, one uh, person in Tightrope uh, who runs a drug uh, treatment program, she estimated to me that uh, that relapses are up 50% because of the pandemic. And so what we have is a pandemic of disease that is now followed by a pandemic of hunger, of, um, of school dropouts, uh, of mental health crises, of, of drug dependency and of suicide. And 
there, you know, there, there are no easy ways to address it. But we do know that that early effort in the, in the spring to send checks to homes did seem to make a huge difference. And um, it also, as best economists can tell, did not seem to impede people returning to jobs. Uh, so um, I, I would very much like to see a, you know, a new stimulus package aimed at sending out, uh, sending out checks. And finally, last question, Nick, you have so much to choose from when you write. I mean, today you just stare at an infinity. There's so many subjects that are important. How do you decide what to do and what are you looking to do, say, over the next five years? Yeah, I mean, Andy, in, in our world of journalism, in a sense that when the world falls apart, I mean, it, it creates it creates this huge buffet for journalists in kind of a tragic way. Um, I look for opportunities to have an impact. And so I don't try to just preach to the choir and people who agree with me, but look for opportunities to either change minds on some issues or to highlight a neglected issue that people haven't focused on and try to project it onto the, onto the agenda. As journalists, I think you know, we can be in the heating business or we can be in the lighting business. And I, I like to think that I can be in the lighting business and shine that spotlight. And when COVID ends, I'll certainly do more of the international reporting that I've always done. But I do, you know, I, I think of those kids, the one quarter of my school bus, those kids who died unnecessarily and others who are alive but are homeless or addicted or have kids or grandkids one of my, you know, one of my friends who we wrote about who was in the dock, uh, he died, uh, but he's got five kids who were taken away by the state. And I just, I worry enormously about those kids and about the future of the country that those crises signify. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be shining away on that spotlight and I'm sure you will be too. Nicholas Christoph, New York Times columnist and co-author of the new book, Tightrope. Thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Andy. I'm Andy Serwer. You've been watching Influencers. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.